So here's something new. We've just launched a beautifully designed On Being Discovery Engine. Plug in your favorite conversation or an interview that set your imagination off in new directions, and you'll be offered a constellation of kindred conversations to keep going deeper and farther. When I enter last week's interview with Arnold Eisen, some of the threads the engine suggests include Amakai Lau-Levy and David Brooks and E.J. Dion. You can also explore hundreds of on-being shows by theme and create a playlist tailored to your curiosities. All of that at discover.onbeing.org. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Lisa Randall. Download the MP3 of our produced show with her at onbeing.org. It's too loud and too cold. Yeah. Thanks. There. Thank you. Yep. Okay. Hi, Lisa. Do can I you... sound okay? You have to get closer. No, that's I'm the sorry. windscreen. I can move you in. Hi, do you hear me? Hi, yes. Can you hear me? I do, just fine. Thank okay, you. Okay, good. Krista Tippett, good to meet you. Good to meet you. Sorry I'm late. No, that's okay. Thanks for doing this. Turned out there were tons of visitors today, and it's like one or two days I'm in town. Yeah. So uh, so I've, I'm happy to be doing it. Sorry it was late, though. No. I got lost. Not to worry. <laughs> we didn't, yeah. I, I It kind of comforts me that you can make your way through dark matter and get lost in cars. Make sure. Are you kidding? Cambridge? <laughs> it's the most confusing it's place. True. In the world. I've driven there. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, how are we, Chris? Do we let, let? Could you just tell me something mundane, like what you had for lunch? Um, I actually had a late breakfast. I made myself some eggs and bacon. Okay. What do you think? Can we just start talking? Um, all over. I was on uh, Memorial Drive. I got lost there. Then I couldn't find the freeway. I, I got back onto Soldier's Field Road. Uh, many different mistakes. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so, you know, we we are going to talk a lot about dark matter and the dinosaurs. Um, but I, I, I spend a lot of time with all of your books and, you know, just looking at kind of the sweep of your career. So I... Um, it's not a book interview per se, but I just want you to know. So we're not going to start there, but we will spend a lot of time on that, and we'll give a lot of. Um, can I can I just ask that yeah. when you introduce me, you introduce me as the author of Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs? Oh yeah, absolutely. Really Harvard Physics. No, that will be, be great. So they get their right. Yeah, no, that'll be up, Good, that'll thanks. be in the script and all over the website and all of that. Fantastic. Um, Thank okay. You. Um, yeah. So I just want to start with. Uh, you know, it was it was interesting for me to read that you grew up in Queens and that you've said that as a young girl you were more entranced with books like Alice in Wonderland than than the scientific books you came across. Um, I actually don't think I came across that many scientific books as a kid. Yeah. Um, you know, basically I went to the library and read what I could. And yeah. I, I love the Betsy books. <laughs> um, I just enjoyed reading. I like the sense of adventure and play. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But, um, yeah, I can't say that I'm really one of those people that said I really wanted to understand the stars. We didn't actually see that many stars where I was. Um, you know, I think it was later on that I really came to appreciate nature more. Mm -hmm. um, really starting probably in graduate school when I started hiking and exercising more. I see. Um, but, you know, it's not that I disliked it. It's just that it wasn't really part of my life. Was, was there any kind of spiritual or religious background to your childhood? Really not. I mean, I think my parents would probably have said they were believers, um, um, Jewish in art and heritage. Um, and, you know, we, and certainly family events um, with some of the Jewish holidays. But um, I never felt particularly religious that I can remember. So and so I'm just curious then how <clears throat> how and when did you start to develop this passion, particularly for science and, and for physics and cosmology? When did that start to happen? Well, you know, people always describe it in terms of passion and things like that. But really, I just liked what I was doing. I enjoyed doing math, and I enjoyed solving puzzles and enjoyed seeing how the pieces fit together. I know this is a very unromantic view of it. It's not this sense of wonder. Well, that's okay. I'm all for de-romanticizing where that's yeah. appropriate. Yeah. But really, it's the kind of stuff I liked. And I, I mean, you know, now that I'm older and, you know, and, you know, in the when I did write this latest book, it really made me appreciate more just how what I'm doing really does connect to some of the wonders of the world. But I think at the time, it was more just, you know, going one step at a time. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to say, like, looking at your, um, looking at your page on Har at, at your, at your, the web, the website at Harvard, like looking at, you know, it's the center for the fundamental laws of nature, the high energy theory group. <laughs> so um, I am totally not responsible for that name, which I find <laughs> really arrogant and obnoxious. I mean, I, and I don't think we're responsible for the fundamental laws of nature. I think we're, and I talk a lot about this at Knock in Heaven's Door, I think we're responsible for the laws of nature that we can understand. And mm -hmm. the ones we can test are, are, you know, they're fundamental up to a point, and then you can find something more fundamental when you can do better experiments or probe more deeply. So I would never have called it that. Yeah, it is. It's very lofty. Um, it's intriguing. It's, it's not just lofty. Intriguing. It's misleading. I think mm -hmm. it's misleading mm -hmm. because I think it gives this nature of science as, you know, we're, we have the starting point and then we derive everything. But really, that's not how it works. I mean, we try to find the starting point. We conjecture um, some theories. But we also try to work backwards, seeing mm. what we observe and trying to see how those pieces fit together. So it's really a push and pull. It's mm. not just one. That's so interesting. Such an interesting way to state it. You know, here's a um, here's a, a, something you wrote just about science. You know, science is a journey. Our world is rich, so rich that two of the most important questions particle physicists ask are particle physicists ask are why this richness. How is all the matter that I see related? And I just wanted to ask you to, you know, start but explain what what you're describing there. What does richness mean in the context of what you do in that sentence? Well, I think part of what I'm referring to is simply the fact that we really don't know how to explain um, why certain particles are essential to the world we live in. We know, for example, that nuclei have what we call up and down quarks inside them. But there are heavier versions. What role do they play? We know there are electrons, but there are heavier versions of the electron, known as the muon and the tau. So there's particles beyond what seem essential to nature or us or life, and we we don't really understand what, what why they're there. I mean, there doesn't necessarily have to be a reason, but we'd like to see is is there at least is it somehow essential to getting us to this point in the world? 
Um, so that's part of what I'm referring to mm-hmm. there. So richness is just that variety of particles and qualities. I mean, there is, of course, unknown. also. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. There is, of course, also the richness of how the pieces fit together, which, you know, is, of course, the wonderful stuff that we observe in the world. Um, and we can see how that fits together and that how that came about and try to understand that um, with science over time. So it's kind of twofold. It's sort of the richness at the fundamental level, but it's also the richness of the complexity that derives from that, those simple ingredients. And it seems that the period in which you have been a scientist these last few decades, when, when did you get your PhD? <laughs> I hate having to answer that because it does, <laughs> gives away my age. But I got my PhD in 87. But I will remind you that I took three years as an undergraduate okay. and four years as a graduate All right, student. all right. But what I'm getting at is, is just how, you know, it, it, let's, it's a short, let's just call it a very short period of time. You're young. It's a, it's a handful of decades, but, but, but the scientific understanding of, of that richness that you were just describing, even in this period, been, has been so evolutionary. It's true. It's been a very exciting time to be a physicist. I think, um, you know, I kind of joke that I kind of lived in the optimal time. I mean, I mean, I think some guys might say they would have liked to have been around earlier, but I think I would have a very good time because not only is science exciting, but it's also a time that allows you to be a woman physicist a little more easily. Yeah. So I feel like I live in the optimal time for me being a physicist. Yeah. Um, but I think also in terms of physics, I think the last century has just seen amazing developments. I mean, cosmology wasn't truly a science until the last century, until Einstein developed his theory of general relativity and observations improved to the point that we could actually see what's going on and make predictions. Um, Particle physics really only developed nuclear physics. All the physics I worked on is a product of basically the last century. You know, it just occurred to me, I'm I'm kind of embarrassed to ask this question because I feel like I should understand it, but I feel like the word, the language of cosmology and physics gets interchanged, at least in in non-science circles. I mean, how do you distinguish between those So things? the other thing that gets confused is astronomy, so let me try yeah, to distinguish yeah, all of them. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so physics, I think of as the fundamental laws of nature, so it could have to do with, for me, for me, physics is elementary particle physics, but there's all sorts of physics, which are sort of the rules by which things work. Um, cosmology is a specific science. It has to do with how the universe itself evolved. Um, it has to do with the Big Bang Theory, the theory of cosmological inflation, all of which I talk about in my latest book. Yeah. Um, but it has to do with just how things evolved to where they are today. Um, astronomy is more kind of, in sense, looking at stars and looking at the actual objects, how they develop, putting together. So what I like to think is, you know, Physicists are looking for sort of fundamental ingredients. Astronomers are putting them together in a particular way to describe what we see today. Um, and cosmology tells you how we got to this point. And of course, they all intertwine. They're not completely disconnected. But someone will usually identify as an astronomer or a cosmologist or a physicist. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. Um, Good that you asked. Actually. <laughs> well, you know, I just suddenly realized. I always get mislabeled, actually, so it's pretty yeah, funny. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, sudden, I'm suddenly realizing that I use those things interchangeably, and I know they're distinct. Um, so, and I actually, I want to say just, um, I feel like this is something that is really extraordinary about you. And I, and I have interviewed a number of physicists and other scientists who do write books for the general public. <laughs> but I find that even a lot of those books are hard to read, um, you know, <laughs> that I actually don't, aren't great translations. And, uh, and you are really really very unusual in how you are able to, I think, articulate complex ideas and retain the complexity, but 
but make it somehow imaginable for the person who's listening. I, I really appreciate that because that is, you know, I th- and I'm glad you added the retain the complexity because I think, you know, you, you have two extreme ends. One is where you simplify so much you lose the richness, and the other is that you leave it complex and it's hard to understand. And the real challenge, and it's one of the creative, I'd like to view it as a creative challenge, was mm. figuring out ways to try to keep that complexity, assume that you have an interested intelligent reader, but still be able to get the points across in ways they can understand. And it's good because it makes you think about what is the fundamental idea at work. It broadens the range of analogies you might use or the way you want to express it. So it's and even, maybe it's even, even sometimes useful for you. Deeply. It help, it's, um, it's a useful exercise mm, for you. Sometimes. I mean, <laughs> is it as useful as sitting down and doing physics? Probably not mm-hmm. um, in terms of my actual research. But sometimes it is interesting to think about what it means in a slightly broader sense, in a sort of more fundamental sense. Mm-hmm. And it certainly gives me the opportunity also to make social analogies and to speak a little bit beyond my field, which I find more entertaining. So so you are, in addition to, to being somebody who can write about this, um, you you are very you are influential and often cited in among theoretical physicists, um, and I want to just just talk a little bit about the you know some of the the major contributions you've made. What what uh, your peers, people in your field, um, understand that you've done that's important. Um, and <clears throat> um, so you know, here's one way you talked about one of your contributions about kind of exploring. The question of why gravity is weak or weak compared to other forces in nature, and you, you said you started out seeking answers to questions in standard model physics and ventured into extra-dimensional worlds, which is such an intriguing right. statement. Well, I mean, I think I've worked on a broader range than most physicists typically do. I started off um, looking at very much um, beyond what we call the standard model physics, trying to understand the physics associated with the Higgs boson, which fortunately now most people are familiar with enough that I can actually say the Higgs boson. Um, But understanding how particles acquire their masses, understanding why the masses are what they are. And a lot of my contributions originally had to do with that question. Um, But I also did actually work on some cosmological issues right from the start. Um, I've become more interested in those of late. And so right now, my chief research focus is actually dark matter. And again, the, the reason is because I think I actually have some new things to say, ideas that have not been explored. And usually that's what I like to do is just find a field that's well-developed that people have thought about, but try to find a different angle, some new way of looking at it. And um, in the research on it, so I did some important work on the standard model, understanding um, what the predictions would be given what we know about the masses of particles, for example. Um, but the work that you refer to has to do with what we call the warped extra dimension of space. That's some work I did with Raman Sundrum, and it had to do with explaining masses, explaining the weakness of gravity, and also just exploring what the consequences of Einstein's equations could be, just the idea that there could be even be an infinite extra dimension of space beyond the ones we see, which no one had realized until that point. Mm-hmm. So... Um, and like I said, you know, I worked on that a lot. I worked on question of masses. And right now I'm thinking a lot about dark matter and have some new ideas there, which are pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's, just, let's just leap in. Let's, let's go to dark matter. And, and this a book you've written um, in this year is, uh, also has this wonderful title, Dark Matter <laughs> and the you. Dinosaurs. <laughs> 
Um, and let's do some definition of terms um, up front. I mean, dark matter is, we now believe, perhaps 85% of the matter in the universe. 15. Actually, that's not, is that oh, not of the matter, okay. yeah. Of okay. the matter, yes. Okay, well, mm-hmm. so, well, okay, then let's just start there. How would you talk about what? So, you know, people get very disturbed about the idea of dark matter. They say, how could there be all this matter that we don't see? Um, but there's a lot of stuff that we don't see. If, if the history of physics has taught us anything, it's or biology or any other field of science, it's how much we don't see. Right. And dark matter, I would have, if I was up to me, I probably would have called it transparent matter. It's matter that doesn't interact with light. Dark stuff, as you know, absorbs light, so you see it. But dark matter, it's matter. It interacts with gravity like the matter we know. It clumps. It's around here in our galaxy. Um, but it doesn't interact with light, so we literally don't see it. We see its gravitational effects, but we haven't seen other effects. We know it's there because of the many gravitational influences of large amounts of dark matter, but an individual dark matter particle has so far eluded detection. And so you're saying 85% is not the right percentage now? Or? No, no, it is. Sorry, I it thought is. you were saying something else. Oh, oh, okay, okay. And so we now believe it's maybe 85%. And then as opposed to, and then like, I mean, let's clarify what any ordinary matter, when we usually say matter, non-dark matter is. is so this, this, the yeah. stuff that's all around us, mm-hmm. um, it's all matter. It's all part of the stuff that we're made of. It's part of the earth. It's people. It's the galaxy. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also dark matter surrounding us. It's just a lot less dense in our vicinity. Nonetheless, there's billions of dark matter particles going through us all the time. Right now, We even. just don't. Okay. Yep, right now. But mm-hmm. we, we don't see them. And they don't interact with us. We don't feel them. We don't smell them. They don't interact with our senses. Um, people are trying to devise very clever ways to look for very subtle, small effects. But so far as we know, the dark matter is not interacting with us a whole lot. It's interacting via gravity. But gravity is actually a very weak force at a fundamental level. That's why you need large amounts of dark matter to observe its effects. And you you say that that while dark matter is mysterious to us, it's not necessarily such a mysterious thing, I think. I think what you're saying, it's not necessarily such a mysterious thing that it exists. Well, I don't think so. I think, you know, it's rather egocentric to think... All the matter should be like just like the matter that we're made up of and that looks just like our matter. I find it in some sense remarkable that we are that the matter we know about is as significant a fraction as it seems to be. Um, you know, about five percent of the energy in the universe is ordinary matter, whereas twenty-five percent is dark matter. I find that remarkable. I mean, it, why isn't it a tiny, tiny fraction? Um, and the fact that we don't see it—I mean, why should everything interact with light? The fact that we interact with light—it's right. the kind of mistake people make all the time. We think we've overcame that with the Copernican revolution. We have a more open perspective, but we still have to get it knocked into our heads every time um, that things are not just the way we see them in our daily lives. It's it's it, it's different, but it it reminds me. I, I'm I'm always aware because we're talking more and more about finding habitable planets for life, and I'm I'm just so aware that we have this definition of life. Um, it seems to me there's a corollary here, but life might have completely different ways of occurring that we haven't. Um, I don't even know exactly what the definition of life is. I think there's some features that go into and people define it. Yeah. But that is one of the challenges in finding other forms of life is knowing what the signal would be for mm-hmm. those other forms of life. We generally assume that it's very similar to the signals that we see, but actually this, um, 
you know, according to what we look for, other universes probably or other worlds probably wouldn't find us. Right, so it's, right. it's very hard to um, come up with definition. And it's it's a big assumption to assume that all life is enough like ours. And we try to reduce it to fundamental things that we can observe, like radio waves. But maybe that's not how they're operating. Um, and you, you, you have spun this um, speculative scenario. Um, but which is based on real science, in which dark matter might ultimately have been responsible for the extinction of the dinosaur 66 million years ago. <laughs> Describe that scenario and how you came to it. So it's, it's actually really fun for me because, I mean, it's one of the reasons I decided to write a book, because I do work on very fundamental, very abstract um, science, um, the Higgs boson or or an extra dimension of space or fundamental particles. Um, but there was this fun thing that dark matter actually does contribute to the structure of the galaxy, to the structure. Uh, ultimately, it's responsible for the fact that things get dense enough that we can form stars in our world. So I liked you know, taking those connections. But in the science itself, um, we, we came at this somewhat indirectly. And I should mention my collaborators, Matthew Reese, Gigi Fan, and Andre Katz. Mm-hmm. Um, we were actually trying to explain how you could get a signal that matched some data. We knew the data actually might be spurious. I, I will confess that right from the beginning. But they saw a lot of photons at the same energy. And there was no standard dark matter explanation that seemed to do this well, that explained why you'd have photons and not other things, including the charged particles. So we were trying hard to say, how can we make a model, you know, a conjecture for what the universe could be, of dark matter could be, um, that could explain the signal. And then we turned it around and we said, you know, maybe it's just that dark matter is a lot denser than we thought it is. Um, now, we have a lot of evidence that dark matter was spread out in, in a diffuse spherical halo in the galaxy. But we said maybe some of the dark matter is like ordinary matter. Ordinary matter is not spread out in a spherical halo. Ordinary mm-hmm. matter sits in the Milky Way plane. So it's much denser than it would otherwise be. And it might never have occurred to you to ask, but why is ordinary matter in this, in this dense plane? And the reason is that ordinary matter can radiate. It can cool down. And because it can cool down, it's in some sense making smaller excursions. So it gets concentrated in this sort of pancake-shaped region at the mid-plane of the galaxy. So we said maybe dark matter, not all the dark matter, just a fraction of the dark matter does the same thing. Maybe a fraction of the dark matter can radiate and also form a plane in the, in the galaxy. And in fact, we realized this remarkable thing that if dark matter particles are heavier and the proton, I realize this is getting somewhat technical, no, but okay. it, would be we'll keep going. Thin, yeah. it would be a thin disk in the Milky Way plane. And that would be extremely exciting and interesting. First of all, it would have observational consequences. But second of all, what would happen is that as the solar system orbits around the galaxy, it bobs slightly up and down. It weaves slightly up and down as, as it goes around in, a, in its mostly circular path. And so what we proposed is that every time it passes through this dense dark matter disk, the tidal force is strong enough that it could dislodge comets that are weakly bound. Now, comets are, in fact, very weakly bound in the distant Oort cloud, which has been in the news lately, so maybe people have heard of it. But it's 50,000 times further away than the Earth is from the sun. It's very far away. And for that reason, the force of gravity is much smaller than it is for us here on Earth. 
And because from the sun, that is. And so that means that it's weakly bound. And if you have a strong enough tidal force, it could dislodge the comet. So our proposal is that every 30 or 35 million years, there's this extra tidal force that dislodges comets from the Oort cloud and explains the periodicity of large comet hits. Um, this is this is not completely established. The statistical evidence isn't extremely strong, but there is some evidence that this happened. Large hits happen on a periodic basis of around that time. And since the one that killed the dinosaurs happened 66 million years ago, maybe it was one of these comets. It was an enormous 10 to 15 kilometer object coming speeding down on the planet and caused the extinction. So we propose this is what triggered it. Does that mean we're due for another one sometime soon? Um, if you think 30 million years is soon. <laughs> oh, sorry, what? I don't think. I don't, if 30 million years is soon. We've, we've actually just passed through the plane of the Milky Way probably oh, okay, a couple okay. of million years ago. Yeah. So we're, we're safe at least from this particular impact for mm-hmm. a while. And are you, so, so now are you working with this hypothesis and investigating it and, and try to, trying to solidify it? Well, it's very hard. I mean, the evidence for the periodicity comes from craters on the Earth. Mm-hmm. This is a great thing. Um, you can look at the Earth Impact Database and see all of the ones that have been found. But what you can do is you can you know basically what the kind of density would have to be of this particular disk in order to give you the right period. So what there is now something called the Gaia satellite that's measuring the position and velocities of a billion stars. And that will essentially create a 3D map of the galaxy. We'll mm. learn more about the galactic plane. So if, in fact, there is this dense dark disk, there should be evidence for it in this data, which will be really exciting. Wow. In fact, it was an amazing thing because when we proposed this, we weren't astronomers. We didn't even know about the Gaia satellite. We were so excited to realize that the measurement we would have asked them to do was actually going to be happening. And it, it launched the, the fall that we had actually proposed the idea. So. When nice do you expect timing. that data to be to be there? It should be coming in the next few years. It's um, probably a five-year mission. So That's exciting. It's yeah, and and one thing that I'm doing now with a student is actually analyzing similar but not as accurate data from the old Hipparchus uh, satellite, which is similar in spirit, and trying to see what kind of constraints you get from that. Hmm. You know, I, I would like to talk. Um, I'm I'm sure we'll come back to dark matter. I, I I would also like to talk about your the way you've worked in worked with and thought about. Um, Extra-dimensional worlds, which um, you know we touched on briefly a minute ago, but <clears throat> you know one of the things you you say is that uh, again, kind of clarifying for laymen that um, that it, it, imagining other dimensions is, is not probably like this our favorite sci-fi uh, dramas, which I love, you know, where you know my lifetime is happening somewhere else with other endings and other pathways. It's that they mm, would yeah. just be very different different realities. Is that is that your understanding? Well, I think that's certainly what I imagine is, um, you know, you could have, I mean, the kind of things that I talked about in extra dimensions where particles and forces we know about are stuck on an object called a brain, B-R-A-N-E, um, which is like a membrane-like uh, surface mm-hmm. in a higher dimensional space. Um, the particles and forces that are stuck here could be different than particles and forces otherwise. That's otherwise where 
other places. And, you know, it's not entirely different from what I'm saying about dark matter just to tie together. Yeah. Because what I'm saying there is that there could be different forces. It could be a different kind of electromagnetism. It could be different type of charged particles. I mean, the fact is that if there are other worlds, even if they're in the same place, um, there could be other universes in some sense right here um, with different particles, different matter, different interactions, just like there can be different forces and particles in other places along an extra dimension. Can you um, clarify this um, this example you give of the nonstick frying pan and quasi crystals, which which is a, a, a something that we, just, that we might, might work is, with, right? But that 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 is a way of talking about perhaps the reality of extra dimensions. You just yeah. Well, it's sort of loose, and it sort of was a fun one. But there's something called quasi crystals, which is supposed to be the projections of higher dimensional crystals. Um, at least they correspond to that in their form. They don't. It's not necessarily where they came from, but mm-hmm. that's what they look like. And the matter we know of is made of ordinary crystals. So that would mean that they would be incommensurate. So your crystals of ordinary matter and the crystals of the frying pan, which is actually ordinary matter, but it's a different sh- different pattern, uh, would be incommensurate, and therefore you can get a nonstick frying pan. I actually got one. It works. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so but just, does, it, does that, does, what does that say about, or is it just an analogy, or what does it say about uh, you know, this idea of You know, people have tested whether it, it really is from an extra dimension. People have tested whether you could see energy disappear. Yeah. So it, it looks like it's not really from an extra dimension, but quasi-crystals do have this interesting structure that seems to correspond to a projection of higher dimensional space um, for reasons that aren't entirely understood. Okay. And, you know, here's an analogy that you've used that I found really helpful. You said, so thinking about how... Um, you, okay, so you, you said that... Um, it's because we know about the dimension of time, this helps us see how there can be physical features shared across generations and geography by people at different ethnic groups. Because it's that dimension of time that we understand makes that possible. And so you've said that um, that if we if we can imagine the reality of of um, extra dimensions, other kinds of dimensions, that may help us understand. And ordinary features of particle physics um, that we can see. How'd I do? Well, um, so what I'm what I'm saying there is, yeah. you know, I was saying why would we even bother thinking about an extra dimension of space? And in fact, you know, when I first entered into particle physics, I probably wouldn't have because I only wanted to really think about things we had a chance of testing. But what I realized is that we do have ways of testing certain ideas about an extra dimension. And there are several reasons people think about it. Uh, One is that we actually don't know how many dimensions there are. Einstein's theory of general relativity works for any number of dimensions. Another is what people propose is a more fundamental theory called string theory, which seems to work only with extra dimensions of space. But the reason that I like is that maybe there are connections that we can understand better or actually understand only if we allow for this possibility of an extra dimension. So of that space. what we what we can see and know right now in particle physics would make sense with this if we if that's we right. factored that's in this right. so, extra dimension. Yeah. So in particular, um, explaining the mass of the Higgs boson or explaining why gravity is so weak, you know, we don't have that many tools at our disposal as particle physicists. Symmetries is one, but basically any kind of interaction that can happen will happen. And so naively thinking that. We could forbid it. Quantum mechanically, it's, things happen anyway. 
But what's interesting about having an extra dimension of space and having things situated in different places is there can be a natural explanation for why gravity is weak mm. for us. Yeah. Gravity could be strong somewhere else, but exponentially weaker where we are. Yeah. And that's what was just that followed just from a solution to Einstein's equations mm -hmm. in the presence of this extra dimension in brains. I loved in your um, your warp, what was it the warp the book that had warped in the title was it, was it? warped passages warped passages yeah, yeah there's a quote at the at the very front of the introduction um, for the Beatles song got to be good looking because he's so hard to see <laughs> <laughs> you know getting permission for all those quotes was a pain probably the Beatles one was probably the most painful but was I just it? love that quote but I just love that quote yeah, yeah it's good um, you I know, loved actually abusing all the song lyrics it was really fun <laughs> yeah you had others I, I you know one thing that you say um, that, that I uh, experience again and again in my conversations I think especially with physicists um, um, is that physics is more creative and fun than 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 people would possibly guess um, in, on so many levels? I mean, there's 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 actually a joy in it. There's 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 kind of a whimsy that you bring in with quotes like that, but that still makes sense. But and also this this speculative um, leap that you're making in order to investigate in, in a kind of hard scientific way. Right. What I'd like to think of is. Um the most interesting kind of creativity is sort of constrained creativity, where you have some rules. I mean, it's it's not just true in science. It's true when you're making a movie. I have friends who make movies. You know, there's certain certain um, formulas that you have to stick to at some level. But within that framework, can you make it interesting? Can you see how things fit together in more complex and surprising ways? And that's where the creativity comes in, trying to figure out. You, you have these elements, but how can they be connected? Is there some some link that we're missing? And then, and then once you have that, you know, you have to be creative about figuring out how will we know if this is true? What are the predictions that you would make that we wouldn't be making otherwise? And how can we test them? So I, I definitely think there's a lot of creativity. I mean, there's certain kinds of physics where you're just working things out. But there's certain types of physicists who are thinking about new ideas a lot. And that's, yeah. that's what I like to do. I was just thinking about um, a neuropsychologist I interviewed who's studying creativity in the brain. And um, creativity as distinct from intelligence. And um, one of the things they measure, one of the measures of creativity is actually humor, um, because it is, in fact, about hmm. making making unexpected connections, you know. And, I think that's totally true. Yeah. And in fact, I, I have a movie reviewer friend who um, had actually talked about Robin Williams in this context mm -hmm. and talked about the amazing connections he made. And um and that was part of his humor was this incredible wordplay. Yeah. And I do find that a lot of kind of mathy people I know are really enjoy wordplay a lot, too, because yeah. it's also these bizarre connections yeah, that you might not have anticipated. Making those unexpected connections and then, you know, I think about leaning into them with joy, leaning into them. And I'm certainly guilty of that, too. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Actually, I think we're going to get to that in a little while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you, you write uh, that uh, once or twice in your life, in the course of your life, when you've told someone what you do, that you're a cosmologist, um, and they've had no idea what that is. They thought you meant cosmetologist. <laughs> It's Which I guess happens. would not happen to a male physicist. Um, but then you go on to make this wonderful, um, you, you, you investigated the fact that those words both actually come from, derive from the Greek word cosmos. And then you say, like a face, the universe, universe has both beauty and an underlying order. 
<laughs> yeah, thank you. I, I actually was thrilled by that, that, you know, that is why these words are related. And it does have to do with the kind of order and beauty that they're associated with both of them. <laughs> and, you know, I wanted to just... Um, I, I do. I do sense that that um, search to find that order, um, you know, just r- runs through this. That that sense of adventure, also about finding that underlying order, is like in all your work. But I know, despite all evidence to the contrary, I insist that the world should have make sense. Yes, <laughs> um, well, it's but you. But you also say um, we shouldn't be obsessed with the theory of everything. Well, that refers that goes back to what I said earlier about fundamental laws. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I mean, I think we make advances. Um, making advances doesn't mean that we have the fundamental answer. It doesn't mean we have the ultimate answer. Even if we did have the fundamental theory, it doesn't mean we would have all everything worked out. It doesn't mean yeah. we'd understand life because we have the fundamental equations. You'd still have a long way to go to understand a lot of the science that follows from those equations. So there's two places where I think it's a problem. One is, do we even have the fundamental equations? And second, once we have them, what are all the consequences? So I prefer to think of it in terms of sort of working backwards, step by step, as we understand more, as we study more, trying to make connections, we have a chance of really solidifying, seeing if they're right. That doesn't mean we can't play around with fundamental theories, see what the consequences are. But I don't think we want to do that to the exclusion of um, the kind of science that's more traditional science. Yeah. So as I was reading through your various work, I I wrote down some um, ideas, quotes that, that seem to kind of epitomize um, some of the interesting ways you think about science or, or, or that you that you make science um, somehow explicable. Thank you. What a lovely thing to do. <laughs> Well, and that you clear, you cl- and that you clarify in ways for non-science that I think are neutral. So, I just want to ask you about a few. I'm sorry, I had a cold this week. <clears throat> I can cut this out. Um, so here's so here's one. You talked about um, the research that led to the to the dark matter and dinosaurs books. That that you had that there were some inspiring lessons from that research. And you said the first inspiring lesson was that the Earth has a love hate relationship with its environment. So talk about that. What that means for you? Well, I think. One of the amazing things about the fact that we can have life on Earth are just the amazing, you can call them coincidences, but whatever, the amazing conspiracies that have to happen. I mean, we want to be close enough to the sun to be warm warm. We don't, and have energy. We don't want to be so close that we're just going to be zapped out by all these cosmic rays or whatever. Not, not cosmic rays, but just radiation. Um, you know, we want to be protected from cosmic rays from the outer solar system. Um, we you know, so the outer planets maybe help us. Um, we, you know, we need a carbon cycle here on Earth. And, you know, one of the amazing things is that, you know, the fact is plate tectonics are contributing to the carbon cycle and plate tectonics are driven by nuclear energy in some sense. There's mm-hmm. nuclear decays inside the Earth. It's heating it up and the, and the plates can rotate. I mean, there's just a, 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 an astounding number of amazing connections that led to the fact that all these things can happen. And and you're saying some of them are, you know, in terms of the love-hate. Oh, sorry. So in terms yeah. of love-hate, those are, are perhaps love. But like I said, we need to be protected from all the dangerous things. And yeah. not only rays, but, you know, there's comets and asteroids that hit us. If if we were being bombarded all the time, that would kill any life that was formed. So we also have to be protected from stuff that's falling in. Um, yeah. And again, we're in a location. Uh, Jupiter scatters a lot of a lot of stuff away, so that it doesn't necessarily hit us. Of course, I do talk about some of the cases where it did hit. 
in particular the one that killed the dinosaurs. But the, yeah. um, but you know that's an example of why you don't want to, you don't want to be hit because it kills stuff. Um, you know there was there was a major extinction. Two thirds of the life on the planet disappeared. Yeah. So that's a very important thing to be protected from these things. So not everything is good. A lot of the environment um, would kill off life, but some of it is obviously essential. And so that's what I'm referring to. Yeah. You know, you point out um, there, there's kind of a, a corollary to to physics and cosmology um, being explicable to non-scientists, um, which is which is analogous to how we have trouble understanding um, biological, you know, evolution. I mean, and Darwin was aware of this that that it's very hard to talk to people about things that happen in the course of geologic time, that our brains simply can't go there. And you you talk about how um, the scales of the cosmos and of physics, you know, are uh, on the one hand so enormous or so unfathomably small um, that they're so removed from our experience that this is one reason it, it's hard for us to, for, for people to take in a lot of what's of science. Yeah. And I think that's true. The distinction I would make is that it's not unfathomably hard. It's hard. Okay. Um, so I think, you know, it's okay to be aware of our um, limitations as human beings, that um, these are things that make it harder. It doesn't make it impossible. And that's the beauty of science, is that we can go beyond these prejudices, if you like, these intuitions that we have built on our ordinary, everyday experience, and understand what's going on in regimes that we don't usually deal with. And that's the beauty of mathematics. That's the beauty of science, right. is it allows us to think about things that seem obviously wrong. They're not obviously wrong. They're just not obvious to us. It's it's a wonderful way of thinking about the the tools, you know, the capacity that science and technology create for humanity. Um, well, I really think so, and I think there's you know just important lessons to be learned. I mean, I think we very often think that just what's obvious is correct, and what's obvious, and forget that what's obvious has to do with our senses has to do with how we perceive the world. And it's not just a lesson for science. I'd say it's also a lesson for social interactions, too. We're f familiar with our social groups, and we forget that other people's experiences are different. Or if we remember, we, we just find them unfathomably difficult to understand, as you would say. But they're not unfathomably difficult. We just have to make a little bit more effort. Mm -hmm. And um, it seems to me in reading you that you... You feel like in at this this moment, um, we are gaining. Um, we're coming closer to being able to understanding the interaction of the insights of particle physics, for example, and the insights of the physics of the cosmos and biological sciences. You know, because it seems like for a while these things have been kept very separate. Um, well, okay, you're I want to be clear. Connections, yeah. I, I don't want to overstate the connections. Okay. Um, at a fundamental level, probably you don't need most of the fundamental particle physics to understand, say, a biological right. operation in an individual. In fact, I talk a lot in Knocking in Heaven's Door about the notion of an effective theory, the fact that you can often just deal with what's observable at a certain scale and ignore whatever is fundamentally going on inside that until okay. you get to, to regimes where you have to worry about that. But what I'm talking about in Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs is more the fact that, you know, the, the consequences of the historical evolution of how things happen. I mean, there was, I mean, there was an amazing 
incident that happened, whether it was caused by dark matter or not, I can't promise you. you mean but there the was an enormous yeah. object that hit the earth that right. caused this extinction. Right. That is an amazing connection, and that changed the course of life. It's what allowed humans to become possible. It allowed large mammals to become possible only because the dinosaurs disappeared. And the dinosaurs disappeared because this enormous object hit the earth. So... That is a connection. It's not a fundamental connection. I mean, things could have happened differently, but it is what actually happened. Mm -hmm. And so these kind of connections I find amazing, that it was something that hit the earth. And the fact that it might even be triggered by dark matter makes that connection even more exciting to me. So so uh, this may be really off base, but, you know, just a couple of days ago, I was involved in a discussion with um, people in, in medicine from different aspects of medicine. And they were talking about how there's this transformation taking place. It's inevitable, although it's going to be very messy getting there. Where, where medicine, previous generations kind of divided the body up into parts and, and, and physicians into specialists. But, but now there's an understanding uh, that of our bodies as essentially an ecosystem and a network and that it's going to be that, – that, that it's so important to be able to understand – yeah, that's always been my joke. Together. If physics if physics was biology, we would have 500 departments. I mean, biology kept splitting itself up, but it's kind of obvious. But physics didn't do that. Is that what you're no, saying? No, but it's, I mean, yeah. it's obvious that biology, that you have to have connections yeah. or else right. it, but, it uh, but, d- but do you also, it seems to me, and again, this may just be off, but it seems to me that what you're, you're kind of looking also at this ecosystem of at a large level of how um, the cosmos and, and particle physics and 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 the and life actually do also are that there is kind of an ecosystem of interaction across long spans of time. I do think that, and I think it's very important that people sort of understand it. And it's not that it's an essential connection; it's not a law of physics. Yeah. But to get to where we are today, there was an amazing uh, sequence of events having to do with cosmology, having to do with dark matter initiating the formation of galaxies, having to do with the solar system forming, having to do with nuclear processes that allow stars to burn, having to do with Earth getting attracted, of course, in a gravitational way and, and becoming an isolated planet so it could clear its vicinity, that um, that then life was able to form in part because we live in a planet that's partially covered with water. Um, yeah. why, why are all these things true? And, and so... Yes, I think it is really important. And I think it's especially important, frankly, because we're dealing with an Earth that's in transition today. Things are changing much more rapidly on the planet Earth than they ever have. I mean, the Earth will survive, but I don't think life is going to be as stable as we'd like to think, at least a lots of forms of life. And, you know, we are probably in the middle of a sixth extinction, and that's not good, at least in my opinion. And so I think it helps to, when we think about all these issues we're facing today, to have this larger, broader sense of the billion of years of history, the millions of years right. of history that got us to this point. Yeah. You, 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 you point out some things that, you know, sometimes when you speak, um, you know, there are things we know and there are things we don't know which are really fundamental. I think this gets at your point that you're saying that, that some of what we, that, that, that scientific progress is in part about working back. Um, so, you know, you've said we talk about the Big Bang, but we don't, completely know what banged <laughs> which is an That's interesting right. phrase yeah or and, and we don't and, necessarily yeah. have to know hmm? we don't have to know but it's interesting to try to speculate on what it is but you know it's funny like i talk i have one chapter where i just talk about all these questions that probably we're not going to answer and one of them is you know what happened in the big bang what happened before the big bang and all of these kind of questions but 
that doesn't mean we can't study the Big Bang theory that tells us what happened after the bang happened, whatever that was, Um, how the universe expands, how the universe cools, how structure forms within that universe. All those are questions we can answer and we can even look for evidence in the the formation of of galaxies and stars. And, I mean, you even point out that... um it's not just that we don't understand dark matter. There's so much we don't understand about ordinary matter. Yeah, that's actually almost a, a joke. But, you know, the, the, a lot of people who pay attention to this kind of thing see this pie chart. And we talk about dark energy, which is 70%, and we don't understand it. And dark matter, which is 25%, we don't know fundamentally what it is. But then there's the 5% of matter that's ordinary matter that we're supposed to know and understand. And at some level, we do understand it. We understand that it's made up of elementary particles. We understand the forces through which it interacts. But what we don't understand is why the matter has survived to today. Um, we know that matter, what we say, annihilates with antimatter. It turns into pure energy. Matter, If you have a, a quark, it gets together with what we call an anti-quark and can turn into energy. For us to have the universe we see today, there has to be more matter than antimatter. And we don't know fundamentally how that came about. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important question. And it's a really fundamental question because it means symmetries that you might have thought are obvious are violated. The fact is, plus charge is not the same as a minus charge. Um, so the question is, why Why is this true? What happened in the early universe? And there's ideas for what happened. In fact, I'm working on some of them today. Hmm. But it's still a very important and interesting question. Is, is that question related to the question of what banged at <laughs> the Big Bang? Um, probably not, but it might have to do with what happened after things banged. Okay. Um, in the sense that we, you know, in some sense from a practical level, we can consider cosmological inflation as the, as the effect of Big Bang, something that we pretty sure happened where things expanded exponentially quickly. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, um, what was the temperature at which that happened? What was the energy? And so it could be related to that question. Um, so many um, people who work with mathematics across the years have talked to me about beauty um, beauty as a kind of litmus test of whether something is true. And you say somewhere, you know, beauty and elegance. You say say that for you, simplicity is a better guide than beauty. And I wonder if you'd just elaborate on that. Um, Yeah. Well, I have a chapter in Knocking Him Historical Truth and Beauty and Other Fundamental Scientific Misconceptions. Um, You know, I, I, I don't think that beauty is as much of a guide as we think it is because As you know, we all think different things are beautiful. And also, even what an individual thinks is beautiful changes over time. Um, You know, there's some ways in which Einstein's theory looks really beautiful, but there's other ways. If I told you what the equations look like and what the solutions look like, you'd think it was a bloody mess. So it's, it's not, I mean, you know, you can frame things so that they seem more beautiful than they are or less beautiful than they are. So I think there is, but there is something that we like, which is sort of simplicity. I mean, if you had too many ingredients then you can explain any outcome. For science to, to be meaningful, you want to have as few ingredients as possible to make as many predictions as possible mm. with which you can test your ideas. So I think that's more the sense. I think that's what people are thinking of. And simplicity, by the way, isn't always beauty. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> complex things are a little more interesting. But so, but is, is beauty a factor for you? I mean, I experience it to be kind of a motivating force for, for a lot of people in science. I would say that I like to... I, there's a sort of fundamental satisfaction that I find when, when I find connections, when things seem to, uh, things you thought were separate could be related. Mm. Um, is that a form of beauty? I mean, probably. I mean, I could define it that way. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and 
I do, and there certainly is a sense in which, you know, I'll be sitting in a seminar and someone will say something is technically natural. I'm like, yeah, but it's ugly. So clearly, <laughs> you know, I do care. That's, you know, and I mean, like, I mean, look, writing books takes away a lot from my time to do science, but there is a sense in which I kind of do recognize that if I'm going to tell you about this and you're going to make faces, it's probably not a beautiful theory and might not be the answer. I mean, you, you, you know, when you have something beautiful, I mean, on the one hand, we all have different ideas, but on the other hand, there's some things that we probably would agree on. And so, you know, one of the tests of whether something's beautiful is, you know, can I tell it to you with a straight face? Mm. Well, but, you know, that's also like saying, you know, we, we could, if you think about mathematics as the language of science, which we don't all, I mean, it'd be like reading a beautiful poem in a, in a language that you can't read. Um, the beauty would be well, lost on you. Is that it? That's not actually entirely true because, mm. you know, you can hear songs in other languages yeah. and tell yeah. that they're quite nice sounding or they're ugly. Yeah. So I'm not sure that's entirely true. If you true. could hear it rather than not be, just not be able to read it. If it could be presented right. in if a you, form. <laughs> yeah. Right. If you have no idea what it is, then yeah. I guess that's true. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, I wanted to ask you. But um, if I give you a page full of um, complicated symbols yes. versus, you know, a few equations, you'd probably say that one is beautiful and not the other yeah. one. Although I, I think, I mean, I, I'm thinking, I think maybe Mario Livio, I talked to a couple of years ago, astrophysicist at Hubble. You know, I think he, I think mm-hmm. he said, and he loves art. He's also a collector of art. But I think he said, you know, where... You know, standing before a work of art, there's many opinions about beauty as people. But he said, I, I think it was him um, or somebody said this to me. You know, but 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 um, the beauty of a mathematical equation is much more. Is there's much more consensus about that? But I think you're saying maybe not. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's, um, you know, again, we can all agree on what's a simple work of art, mm-hmm. and we can all agree on what's a simple equation. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's the same as agreeing on what's beautiful. Yeah. You um, you write in the um, Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs book about uh, dark matter debates that you were part of, a conference. Right. And, yeah, and this yeah. gets back to, I think, the fun um, for you and being a scientist. Um uh, you talked about so there's Occam's razor, which is the idea that the simplest <laughs> yeah. simplest explanation is probably true, which scientists work with, which as you say is not always right, but often is a good guide. And, and so, just would you explain this? So, so in the course of this conversation, or like I think it's a paragraph in your book. You know, you're talking about it, some discussions be- between uh, among you and some other scientists. There's Occam's razor, and somebody proposed Wilson's scalpel, and you proposed Martha's <laughs> table as guidelines. And I just wonder if you would share that. <laughs> well, I think, you know, when people use Occam's razor, they, you know, they don't realize they've sort of narrowed the, the playing field a lot of the time. They, they focus on a particular problem and they say, can you solve this problem? And, um, and yes, you could probably have a simple theory that solves that one particular problem. But if you can't fit it into a larger context, that's probably not the right scientific theory. So I joke about Martha's table that you want a complete table setting, that you don't just want and you're talking, a you're razor, referring to Martha you don't Stewart, just want a knife. Right? Yeah, <laughs> you wanted, even it's a very complex table. If it's, it could still look orderly and nice, and you know you can have the tools to address all the different meals you're going to be served. Mm-hmm. And you know the universe is a complex place with a lot of phenomena you want to explain. So you can't just narrow down only on one particular problem. Of course, you can do that as a temporary thing, but at the end of the day, you're trying to explain the larger set of phenomena. And it goes back to what you were saying earlier that it's you know you don't want to get so overly focused on one problem that you lose track of the fact that it's part of this larger world. I think this also um, gets at 
something else you wrote that's a simple sentence but strikes me as very important, that we often fail to notice things that we are not expecting. Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's so hard to believe, but, you know, I I mean, I think, you know, going out in nature helps you see that a lot. You know, someone will Mm -hmm. notice some animal that just went by and they're like, how did you not see it? It was right in front of you. Um, But you just weren't looking. And, And so... And I think that's just true of so many things in our daily lives. I mean, you know, I have an apartment in Manhattan. And, you know, when you look up, you see all sorts of interesting architectural details that you don't see when you're at eye level, yeah. you know, at, at your head level. You, you know, you sometimes just have to look around or you, or you miss things. And I think the world is full of surprises and we're surrounded by them. Um, but we often miss them. And it's fascinating to think about you, about about applying that then to this sphere in which you're working um, uh, in particle physics and thinking about extra dimensions and dark matter. You're, you're saying that this Well, I think it's true. not just important for me, but mm-hmm. I think it's important for, you know, telling experimenters what to look for. You know, they have very complex experiments. Unless they know to look for something, it's very likely that they'll miss it. It'll get yeah. caught up in the background of all the buzz of all the other stuff that we know is there but doesn't tell us something new. So you want to really think about the specific things that you're looking for to make sure you don't miss them. And that's one of my roles as a scientist and as a model builder. Hmm. So I, I want to read, and this is kind of a longish um, passage from um, the Dark Matter and Dinosaurs book, just because I think it's wonderful, and I'm going to ask you a question. Um, Thank you. And, and so this is this is at the kind of at the you, you talked about you know this this book this and this research is kind of bringing together insights from astronomy and biology and paleontology in addition to the things you always think about. You said, "I was awestruck and enchanted not not only by our current knowledge of our environment, local, solar, galactic, and universal, but also by how much we ultimately hope to understand from our random tiny perch here on Earth." I was also mm-hmm. overwhelmed by the many connections among the pieces that ultimately allow us to exist. To be clear, mine is a deeply unreligious viewpoint. I don't feel the need to assign a purpose or meaning, yet I can't, yet I can't help but feel the emotions we tend to call religious as we come to understand the immensity of the universe, our past, and how it all fits together. It offers anyone some perspective when dealing with the foolishness of everyday life. It's a wonderful passage. And, you know, so I wanted to just kind of drill down in that a little bit. So and ask, you know, that perspective that you have from the science you do, you know, can you just talk a little bit about what form that takes? Like how being steeped in these ideas and discoveries and questions shapes the way you move through the world of ordinary matter (laughs) that we've also been talking about. It's funny, you know, um, (laughs) because... I can be, I mean, I'm a pretty observant person, but I can also have blinders sometimes and just focus on what I'm interested in. And I think it's important to do that um, if you want to make progress in what you're doing. Uh, you know, it's funny, when I was at MIT, one of the staff people who I hardly knew, came, I guess she maybe did interviews and she came over and said, I noticed that you seem to like be able to, because, you know, there are obviously issues at any university. She's like, I noticed you managed to be able to ignore all those things and just focus on what you're doing. <laughs> and I was just really surprised. I was like, huh, because, you know, I certainly didn't feel like I was ignoring them. I was pretty aware of them. But there is some sense in which you have to, you know, have some perspective and say, you know, what's important. And, um, you know, mm. for some people, those details are important. But, you know, I like to think that there's fundamental truths that we might be learning that are in some sense more important. And those are worth, you know, drilling down and and, and really focusing on. Mm. So I think, you know, 
you know, you sometimes, you know, I'll laugh, you know, I'll think, I'll think about like, you know, suppose there were creatures in other planets and they read our newspaper or they watched our TV. <laughs> I mean, what would they be thinking? You know, well, it you know, depends on what TV they were really watching. Value? Let's be clear. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I'm not saying they would always have negative conclusions, but it's just fun to think of, yeah. you know, someone who's outside all the details, outside of all of this. I mean, will they really be as excited about the new iPhone as, as people seem to be? <laughs> right. You know, like, yeah. like, will they really notice the difference? They're like, that looks pretty much the same to me. Yeah. So, yeah. so um, you know, I think it's really important. And that's not to say that we don't all get caught up in it, but I think it is sometimes important to think, like, what are the really big places where we're making advances? Um, you know, you you are you are really you are a scientist scientist. Um, in addition to being a translator, you know, for the rest of us, but um, also really feel like your work is so interwoven with your being, and and there's a joyfulness, there's a, such a lightness to it. It's not all intellectual. Um, I <laughs> I kept thinking of. Um, you know, Karen Armstrong, and she's a scholar of religions, um, mm-hmm. yes. and she's mm-hmm. a former nun, and she was a nun, and 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 and, and she's I the, remind you of a nun. That's interesting. <laughs> no, well, okay. Well, well here's what. <laughs> no, Thank here's you. what it reminds me of. <laughs> I don't think that was in it. Um, is it? She's. I asked her once, like, because she had been a nun, but now she she's not a nun anymore. She's, you know, she left the cloister. Know, she's a scholar and she's a thinker. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, she she said that she thinks of her work now as her prayer, right? like her scholarship, her thinking, her study. And I, I don't, this may be a real stretch, but it, I just wondered if there's, if there's anything in that that reminds you of you, it, it, not, not that you would you know, use the word I'm, prayer. But. It's really funny. And it, I'm so the opposite of that in the sense that, you know, I try not to take myself overly seriously. Okay. I mean, of course, you know, if you ask people around me, they probably would disagree. But I'm not <laughs> thinking in those terms. I'm thinking about, like, what is the problem I'm trying to solve? Like, mm-hmm. is there an answer? Is this is this a credible answer? I mean, do I, do I feel satisfaction in doing it? I'm not trying to label it. I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to say, am I building a cathedral? I'm just saying, like, does it work? And, you know, the fact that it can add up to something more is fun. And one of the joys of writing a book is being able to take that step back and say, look, this is why it's interesting. This is why it's important. This really is saying something about our world. But in my day-to-day existence, that's not how I'm thinking about it. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm not really thinking about how you think about it, but how it feels, like how you carry it. Um, I don't know. Does Um, that make sense? I th- like I said, I think there's some sort of satisfaction in making connections, uh-huh. um, you know, solving a problem. I think we've all solved a problem. I mean, you know, you finish a crossword puzzle. Okay, it's not like you've advanced the world, but there's a satisfaction in that. There's a satisfaction in winning a game of chess. It's, you know, we, we all have feel this, like, satisfaction of winning games or solving problems. And it's somewhat like that, uh-huh. um, but it's, you know, something that I think has more meaning, um, something that might, you obviously are going to be working on for a longer time. You can put together, you know, you have sort of deeper, more developed connections among all the different ideas. Um, and there is a sense of play in it, in addition to all the seriousness about it, um, because, you know, some of the ideas will be true and some won't be true. But it's fun to figure out how are we going to know what they are, what, what are the possibilities which are the ones that work, which are the ones that don't work. And maybe deep down I'm taking it as seriously as everyone, but I think as soon as I start saying that to myself, I think Mm. I would be afraid. (laughs) And I think it's just much better for me to think of it as sort of a little bit of a game. Yeah, um, but I mean, it is, 
It's pretty amazing to think about, you know, just this one thing we've talked about that you're working on now, um, the the nature of dark matter, and and if you do indeed are indeed able to make a connection between a new understanding of dark matter and this extinction event that um, that has and also to be clear, it's not just one thing I'm working on. I mean, there's different possibilities for what dark matter can be, Uh and I'm working on you know different ones that aren't even necessarily all consistent. It's just, you know, I want to know what the answers are. So it's yeah. fun to think about what the possibilities can be. Yeah, there's something I wrote down somewhere you wrote. Um, oh, here, I like this. When it comes to the world around us, is there any choice but to explore? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's kind of a good exactly. mission statement. I like that. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Thank you. I, I wish I could. I, can I get this list of quotes? It's fantastic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, wow, I said that. That's I can great. send you my notes if you want. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, no, That'd it was a lot fantastic. of fun. This would be great talking to um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so just my final question, I, um, you know, you do. So I find, um, so let me just say this. I think, were you in, in Brian Greene's same high school class? No, Brian Green was in my class. He's in your. Oh, sorry, he was in your class. Yeah, got it. <laughs> no, it's the same thing. I'm yeah, just <laughs> I know. I know. Um, so you know, I had a conversation, with, a public conversation with him once, and um, I, I think he was being provocative and playful, but you know, re- really kind of resisting the reality of all these things that we that that are our intuition that in fact are proven to not be true by science. I feel like you. You're very clear in saying, you know, there's there's what science in its objectivity and its complexity can see. And then there's the reality of, of how we as human beings are and how we interact with the universe. And these things are just, they're just different. Um, I would say it slightly differently. Okay. I would come back to the notion of an effective theory. I mean, you know, so for example, here's a simple example, or not simple, but just one example. Are Newton's laws correct? Well, we know Newton's laws are not fundamental. We know that quantum mechanics is more fundamental. We know that relativity is a more fundamental theory. But Newton's laws happen to work incredibly well over a large range of parameters. And that is to say we can send a man to the moon based on Newton's laws. So so for that purpose, they are correct. That doesn't mean that it's the ultimate reality, if you want to say it that way. Yeah. But over... And I think that's kind of very helpful in thinking about a lot of philosophical questions, a lot of scientific questions. The notion of effective theory, it really adds depth and meaning and helps us understand these questions because it's saying within this realm that we've explored so far, what are the rules that work? And when we go beyond that, what are the rules that work? Does that mean Newton's laws are wrong? I wouldn't say that they're wrong, but I would say that they are not the most fundamental rules and they will break down. And eventually, if you do something more precisely, you will find deviations from the predictions of Newton's laws mm-hmm. or you will get to a regime where they just don't apply. So that's more how I'm thinking about it. And and you would would you say that it, at present there are lots of things um, about about biological life, about our brains, for example, and about the, the, mm-hmm. the ecosystem that is a human being um, that we we can't explain or can't address. And are you just, you're okay with that? You don't, you don't, I don't know. Of course I'm not. Asking. I'm a scientist. I want to understand everything. <laughs> okay. But, um, but what I would say is yeah. that, so I just want to make a distinction. It's, yeah. you know, so there are some things that we, like we have optical illusions. Um, yeah. Does that mean, you know, and they are illusions. We can see their illusions. So yes, our senses sometimes deceive us. That's one thing that happens. Another time, we just don't have access. So for example, dark matter, we don't see in our daily lives. Does that mean that we're crazy to think that we, you know, 
that we only have real matter. Well, to, to all intents and purposes, in many ways, we're only interacting with ordinary matter. So we can forget the dark matter for a lot of the things we do, not for the things I do, but for the things you're doing. So, But I do think the beauty of science is that it can tell us the distinction. It can tell us when huh. are we really making a mistake when we think our intuition is right. And when, do, you know, so when does it matter? And again, I, I would argue that this goes beyond the scientific realm. You know, things that are obvious are not always obvious. Sometimes they're just familiar. And sometimes it helps to have objective ways of codifying whether or not those things are true in, at, at a more fundamental level. When you say that things that are not obvious are not always obvious, they're, or, uh, they're, they're just familiar. So what would an example be, just a really standard example? Well, I mean, a, a stupid example is, you know, all the scientists are men. You know, there was a time when all the scientists were men, but like that's no longer true. Right, you know, so right. it's just, you know, it has to do with a whole bunch of circumstances, societal circumstances that created that. But, you know, if you were observing what it was like 200 years ago, you might have come to that conclusion and thought, well, it's obvious. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. not obvious. Yeah. So so the question I actually wanted to ask you out of this is um, uh, this question of what it means to be human you know, how you would start reflecting on that and, and, and in the sense of how that's evolved, you know, as your scientific work and perspective has evolved. Uh, <laughs> I know, it's huge. Yeah, that's kind of a huge question. Yeah. It's like, oh, just one little question to end yeah. the thing. No, so you don't um, have to give a comprehensive, so just have to say, how would you start thinking about that? <laughs> um, you know, I guess I would think about how I interact with the world, uh, what that is at a fundamental level, what my senses can perceive, um, and then how I interpret that information, how I try to form a bigger story. You know, I think the, the fact that the influence of time is really important, how that story changes over time. I think yeah. that's one of the really interesting questions. How does the you today connect to the you that you were when you were younger? Um, I think that's a really important question. How does, um, you know, when did you become you, you know, in the sense yeah. of when did your thoughts and memories uh, develop to a point where they're distinct? Um, so I guess I would try to break it down to smaller questions that I can compare, say, one time to another time, maybe the way I see something to another human being. I mean, you know, there's so many fundamental things we don't know. I mean, when I see something blue, am I seeing the same thing that you're seeing? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just so many questions about what it means to be human that I sort of don't know where to begin, to, but uh, on the other hand, I would begin at any one of these places, and they probably all could give you some answers. Yeah. That, the the idea of time, uh, I, I feel like this is one of the um, most interesting, profound places where science, just physicists in particular, just exceed the world differently than than the, than the ordinary experience that most of us have. Oh, I would just say nobody understands time. Then nobody understands time. Yeah. Um, I remember talking to Paul Davies one, a long time ago about Einstein, and, and he talked about the notion of block time, that essentially essentially somehow everything is actually happening at the same time, but we, but we can't yeah, perceive it. Do you believe it that? that? It doesn't seem to be true. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think about it sometimes. I try to imagine. Softly deterministic. I don't know. Yeah. It seems seems well, like to me that there's a little bit more randomness in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you think about, I mean, I love those questions you just framed about the me that was then and the me that is now and what time makes possible. I mean, how do you think about time as an element of human becoming or does that, does that? Well, I mean, there's sort of a practical element of just how things uh, change over time. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting as people study aging, you know, and, you know, and, you know, I, 
you know, even, you know, I mean, this is sort of a depressing idea, but, you know, when I think about the question of the soul, you know, it's just interesting because when you see someone who's on the verge of death or has Alzheimer's or is really sick, I mean, is that the same person they were before? Yeah. I mean, so where's the soul? Is that the person that's going to survive? I mean, it just seems like it, it shows you how difficult these concepts are to really define in any way, which is why I pretty much don't believe in it. Mm-hmm. But um, I think, but I do think it forces you to think about what it means to be a human being and what it means to be about a particular human being. Um, but there's, you know, time associated with people and there's times associated with abstract physical processes. And I can tell you about warp time, I can tell, but there still is a sense, you know, I can talk about extra dimensions of space, but we don't know how to talk about extra dimensions of time, really. Yeah. And um, certainly ones that we overlap with. Um, so time seems to be, you know, this thing by which we measure progression. But um, how that got defined in the first place, I think, is a very difficult question. Mm-hmm. Is um, is mystery in your vocabulary? The language of mystery. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. So solving. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. That's great. Um, I, I think this has been really wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, good. I've enjoyed it, too. Thank you. And I, I would like that list of quotes. That's kind of really? awesome. <laughs> if you don't mind, that'd be great. No, but anyway, well, thank I'll, you for doing such a thoughtful interview. It really was nice to hear some, some of this. Yeah, stuff. well, I, really I'll, nice. I can send you my thank notes, you. and I don't always credit where I got the quote from. Some, it's off. It's a lot of it's from the Dinosaurs oh, book, it. but some of it's from other it. books. And I also yeah, no, looked, at, I looked at other interviews you've given, but I know they're all, they're all true quotes. Um, yeah, it was just great. But, um, but I do appreciate the thoughtfulness of it. I really do. And the fact that you really did do your homework and, well, and they're really interesting questions so thank you thank you yeah well we, we'll let you know what's happening with this I think you've been in touch with Lily and um, yeah just thank you so much for taking the time it's great to meet you you too thanks yeah. a lot bye bye